Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try something I haven't done in a little while. Hopefully it works well. I've not been known for my good penmanship, but I'm going to try to work out the notes a little bit on the screen for you. Uh, Hopefully it'll be profitable and you'll be able to see the text kind of come to life in front of you a little bit. I'd like to spend about 20 or so minutes doing this and then give that last 25, 30 minutes to prayer if we can do that. I have a tendency to like to share with you what I've learned in God's Word, so I usually shoot long on the teaching part. I know you guys are gracious with me, but uh, if it's the cost of prayer, I need to uh, do our best to make sure we have a good time of prayer tonight, so we're going to make that our goal. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, he's dealing with the theology of the resurrection in the whole entire chapter. It's an extended and long chapter with various um, themes that kind of rise to the surface. He sets it aside and moves on. We're going to be focusing on verses 12 through 19 tonight. You can see it up on the screen. Um, And and our goal here is really to evaluate the question that the apostle puts in front of us because the uh, the Corinthians are thinking that perhaps in some way Christ did not raise from the dead. Probably the best way to think through the theology of the, I'm sorry, they're not, not, not that Christ didn't raise from the dead, but that people don't get raised from the dead. And probably some type of Greek Gnostic kind of tendencies where the, the flesh, which the Apostle Paul used the word flesh about seven different ways, but it has kind of a negative term. If I told you that I was, you know, um, unkind to, to my daughter and I was just acting in the flesh, you would immediately kind of hopefully interpret that as sin nature, right? Like you, you'd immediately kind of be thinking, yeah, he was acting sinfully, um, but flesh is, I mean, you know, it's just a flesh wound. No one's thinking like, oh, his sin nature got hurt? <laughs> you, you know intuitively a flesh wound is, is a minor wound in, in the body. Uh, you know, it's a physical wound. So um, there's this tendency in that, that kind of New Testament and later centuries, this Greco culture has made it so that the body is seen as sinful, wicked, bad. The spirit is good. And so that would be some of the rise, I think, in the, in the Catholic Church of the asceticism, where you get like this, hurt your body, um, severe fasting, and, and holding off of physical comforts in order to become more holy, because as you basically subdue the body's desires, your spirit gets more holy, would kind of be the thought, and frankly, it's the, then you have the rise of the monasteries in the what, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. Um, so the Apostle Paul is, is concerned that they, by denying the resurrection, are doing way more damage than they could possibly know to the gospel, right? So verse 1 and following, I delivered to you of what was most important, the gospel. It's the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. He then documents the gospel, how Christ has lived, he's died, he's been raised again. This is all in accord with the scripture's accounting. That would probably be Old Testament, right? The New Testament is not really existing yet when he writes the, I mean, 1 Corinthians is very early in the New Testament history, so he's suggesting to us that this, this is actually Old Testament truth, that, that, that the gospel is in accord with the Old Testament promises and declarations um, embedded in those texts. Then we come forward to verse 12 through 19, and he's going to go after it. This is a systematic theology moment of Scripture. And here's what I mean by that. He is laying in front of us a theology, defense of the resurrection, and he's doing so, and he's going to have a hypothetical. So you look in verse 19, it's going to be verse 12. 
And, and he's going to say something like, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, he's going to say, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Right? He's, he's going he's to challenge them and say, you're saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Again, probably some type of spiritual resurrection they have, but no bodily resurrection. You know, some kind of weird hybrid. He's saying, okay, so let's tease this out. Let's do some good systematics here. If we, if we grant you your point, and so he's going to grant them a false premise that Christ did not raise from the dead. Or actually, again, I'm getting ahead of myself, that there is no resurrection of the dead, right? What's the conclusion? If there is no resurrection of the dead, categorically, then what happens? Okay, so, so if there is no category of resurrection, then what does that mean about the resurrection you say you believe in? Right? So if the false premise is true, there is a result, and the result is what? Christ is not raised from the dead. Now he gives three consequences, so I want to kind of tease through those consequences with you, because you'll see them right here in the text. Um, verse 13. Before I get that, let me just tell you, I think in the bigger argument here, verses 12 through 19, and then verses 20 through about uh, 30, is setting the stage to, to make a point that not only is it theologically necessary for the gospel, but it has behavioral impacts on their holiness. Right? You come down to... Uh, verse 32, you know, like, I am fighting with beasts at Ephesus. In other words, his courage and boldness in the Lord is directly related to his theology of the resurrection. And if we don't believe in the resurrection, let us eat and drink, because what? Yeah, he doesn't quite finish the, the, the quote of the Greek culture of the day of, like, if there's no hope in the afterlife, party on, man. Right? This is, this is YOLO. This is you only live once, baby. Right? Like, it is a corrupted, godless thought. And, and so, so, again, going systematics. He's going to defend it systematically, but his point is, is, is your theology changes your practice. And, and as churches, sometimes we can be really high on one and not on the other. That, that imbalance, I mean, man, there are two legs of Christian life. You cut off one, you're going to fall over. You have, you have your, your rich theology and, and from that, your practice is supported. But your, your practice, if you look again at the text here, verse 34, wake up from a drunken stupor. I'm sorry, go back to verse 33. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Don't go on sinning. So what's corrupting their theology is their practice too. Like It's not as though one is the foundation from which the other springs. When, when you get this bad, they affect one another. I would suggest to you, in terms of priority, theology leads to good practice, but, but the idea that somehow they're, they're isolated, that good theology always leads to good practice, and your practice, bad or good, has no effect on your theology is nonsense. Does that make sense? Like, if you have bad practice, you will get bad theology. And if you have good theology and your, your, your meditation and your systematics are working that into practice. Your practice will be reformed by your theology. But then as your theology begins to get reformed, so too are sanctified, so too then will your theology get cleaner, richer, more faithful. Right? That these are, these are you, you can't just drive a wedge between them and live in an ivory tower of theological goodness while living a life of trash. You cannot do that. Nor the reverse, can you have a holy life of devotion to the Lord and be a theological ignoramus or evil person. Your theology 
and practice are related. And so I think he makes that point really clearly. Um, so, so coming down, I want, I want to give you six consequences of um, denying a resurrection. And the major one being what? You lose Christ, and that's actually not the six consequences we're going to deal with because that's, that's kind of implied false premise that there is no resurrection. Consequence. Like the major consequence is Christ, and now we have three subcategories or three, three kind of outflows of that. So again, if you look at the text, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then what? So, so consequence number one, if you, can, if you can see that there, is that our preaching is in vain. That, that the entire ministry of Paul, the whole purpose, I mean, he's writing to a church. The thing that brings them together is Christ and, and the ministry of the word of God in the community of the people of God that are called the bride of Christ. And all of that dissolves like a sandcastle in the waves of this bad theology. It's just gone. Saying, listen, if there is no resurrection, we're preaching nothings to people. We're giving, we're giving butterflies and sunshine and it's false promises. They're going to die. There's no hope in the gospel. Our preaching is powerless. It's in vain. No one can be redeemed and sanctified, made holy through this preaching. It is worthless to even open my mouth. Let's get rid of this thing. If we get rid of the resurrection. Now, I don't think the Corinthians were like, you know, I bet what's really resurrected is just my spirit. That they're like, you know, if we do that, then we should just not preach. But that's, that's my, my point on systematics, is he's saying, if you take away the resurrection, de facto, that by, by fact of that, Christ is not raised from the dead. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, the downstream effect is we lose the very purpose for which we gather. The ministry of the word of God, the hope of the gospel, the sanctifying power of the gospel, all of it's gutted. That's consequence number one. Number two. What else is in vain? I guess I was going to write that more permanently. Your faith is in vain. Okay, so, so not only is preaching in vain, but the very thing that it produces within you is also not relevant. I mean, by, by, what do you think will happen if you believe in a false hope? <laughs> only disappointment. I mean, this is, this is a worthless belief. It does nothing. Um, and you get this all of the time in our world. You have so many people believing so strongly in the next politician to rescue this country. And yet, don't you feel like over the last 40 years, like if you were to graph it and then just like straight line, you just see like a line of dissent. It didn't matter who won the election. It just feels like the Lord is teaching us much like he did in the Old Testament that any ruler besides Jesus Christ is not going to be able to renew and restore culture. And that doesn't mean we should be hopeless about politics, but it does mean we shouldn't put our faith in the politicians. It doesn't mean we, we have no hope that God will be gracious to us through our leaders, but it does mean our hope is not resting in their restoration of a country to its glory days. Your faith is in vain. You will not be saved. Your faith is and your arms around which it clings is holding nothing but hollow promises. Number three, and we are what? Basically, we're liars. Now, again, he's going to systematics here. Why are they liars? 
because we're misrepresenting not Jesus, but whom? God. So he's teasing out the resurrection. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God did. Who's going to raise you from the dead? God. He is the one who is executing justice and has the right to, to grant you the reprieve on the basis of Christ's substitutionary work. It is he who in the Old Testament sets up a system of substitution through a sacrifice where sins and guilt are expressed by transfer with the guilt of the high priest, but he's hand on the goat, that those sins can be atoned for by another, by an innocent representative. God has established this as the mechanism by which he can grant grace, Romans 3. It's the kindness of God that leads this, and it is in his forbearance that he passed over sins formerly committed by looking on Christ, right, in the Old Testament, so that he is righteous now in justifying those who have faith in Christ, Romans 3 says. This is about God. And if we take away the resurrection, then we still have Jesus Christ dying as a sinner under sins, God not raising him from the dead. Not only is the gospel of a resurrected Christ done, but a gospel of God's power to save is undone. God himself is shown to be powerless to save. And now not only are we preaching just nothing, we're actually lying to people, deceiving them about a glorious God who in fact is not glorious. I don't think when the Corinthians were sitting there in their coffee shops playing with their theological considerations of what the resurrection looked like that they realized they were calling God a liar at the end of the day. But this is why, again, I'm not just trying to plug systematics, but that's why it's important that we as theologians, because every one of us is a theologian, if we believe in the gospel of Christ, we're taking different threads of truth about God and bringing them together into a cohesive understanding of life and reality that we understand those things are right, that we align the claims of Scripture and that they agree and bring about a unified understanding of God's Word and His world. That's what systematics does, right? It takes this claim over here that God is good and this claim over here that God is holy and sees that they are not in conflict but in sweet harmony and aligns them. Okay, number four then. And and let me just just point out, he kind of has a refrain. It's almost like a song. You know, where we have like verse, verse, or verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And so he's, he's kind of getting back to the chorus here, right? So we, we have this, um, we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, and if Christ is not raised, then, then we've lied. And then he repeats that, right? So if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And then in verse 17, he begins to give us a fourth thing. So you guys all see the repeat? I don't know if I said that very well, but, but you have, if Christ has not been raised, it's a repeat of Christ has not been raised. And so you have like that repeat between those two lines there. And so now with your faith is futile, he's going to give the fourth. Do you guys see those connections where he's kind of, like I said, it's kind of like a song where he's kind of repeating that anthem and now he gives the, the filler within the verses. So what, what happens then? Our faith is futile. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Our faith is futile. It's almost like he picks up. Your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile. And not only that, but you are still in your sins. If you just, if you have quick fingers, Romans 4. If you don't, just listen well. Romans 4, 25. Let me go back and read verse 24 just to pick up the context. Um... 
So our sin was counted uh, to Christ for ours, to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Look in 5.10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his, his life. If we have a dead Savior, we are still in our sins and we have no hope of sanctification. Right? It's a living Savior by whom we're sanctified. It is a raised Christ that brings us justification. And, and I've shared with you before, and I think it's, it's helpful, but you know, if you're to ground a child, I, I guess I usually do it with prison, but if you're to ground a child for a week, at the end of the week, they go free. Right? And if at the end of the week they're like, hey, hey, Dad, can I go to my friend's house? And you say, no, you're grounded. They would probably say back to you, but Dad, I thought I was only grounded for a week. The penalty's been fully paid. I've suffered miserably under your wrath, Dad, for a week. Isn't the wrath now lifted because the penalty's been fully paid? Now, if Jesus Christ's penalty is fully paid, then the restoration of life is, is proof that the judge has granted him full rights to life, having fully paid the cost of sin, which is death. All right? So you're still in your sins then, if Christ is still dead, because he's still in his sin. Or I should say, he's still in our sin, to be clear. Right? He was made to be sin for us. If he's still paying the penalty, he's still under God's wrath, he's still under sin, therefore we ourselves are not forgiven yet either, or have no just cause in God's um, system to be righteous. Verse 18 it's not just that, though. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have what? Oh, this is heartbreaking. Right? This is where we get hopeless. So notice even, like, he, he seems to hesitate here. He says those who have fallen asleep. Why do we use the word sleep to talk about people who have passed away? It's what? It's more than gentle. But you're right, it is. What, what happens when you go to sleep, you wake up, right? So he knows. Like, he's saying those who've fallen asleep, he's not even going to grant them that they're dead. Right? Like, like, even though he's granting the false premise, there's no resurrection. So let's tease this out, boys. Let's see what this looks like. If we tease out there's no resurrection, our world burns. Like, like our faith, our churches, our hope, our reason for living, we are still in our sins, everything gets burnt to the ground. But even in the middle of that, he, can't, he cannot or does not choose to use a word that would indicate they're anything less than um, future, living, resurrected, fully embodied, glorified saints. They're asleep. All right. But if, in fact, they are, like there is no resurrection, then we have to say that in, even in their kind of spiritual sense, they're dead. They've perished. There, there is no life for them if there is no resurrection at all. You, you don't get to have halvesies. You're half resurrected. No, you're either all or nothing. And he's saying, man, this is a hopeless theology you guys are toying with. And again, next week we'll look at it, and it absolutely bankrupts your spiritual life and practical life. Which, I think if we end there, so if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? 
why are we to promote most to be pitied? Okay, we believe a lie. So, so, so to tease that out, because that's a great answer. First, we sacrifice, we devote ourselves, we spend time on living for Christ. Right? Like, you are daily taking up your cross and following Christ. Or as Paul will say, I fought with the wild beast at Ephesus. Like, he's literally risking his life. And we're pursuing a hopeless outcome. It's, we, are, we are chasing the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. It's a myth, man. If you consume all of your money, all of your resources, you sacrifice deeply for something that's just a mirage, we would all feel bad for you. And I think part of it then, too, is also then our faith itself is to be pitied. Right? We don't just pity the loss of, of something. Like, it's, it's not as though, Mark, all of the money and time you've invested in seminary and, you know, your devotion to the church and all of that is gone, therefore I feel sad for you. And because at the end of the day, I have a fantastic family, a wife who loves me, a church family that, I mean, people say, do you love Bakersfield? And the first thing that springs to mind is my friends, and that means my church, generally speaking, and I love Bakersfield. Right? I mean, one of the most Bakersfield things to do is hate on Bakersfield. Like, but I, I just find no sympathy with that. Um, I grew up in cold weather. <laughs> that Cold weather's horrible. I grew up in humidity. Humidity is horrible. You, you, you do not know how. I'm, I guess because San Diego and L.A. are close, like Bakersfield is running a bad third to the rest of the state. But to the rest of the country, we're third. You know, like. Listen, the stuff of like this life, moving to California, giving my money to the Lord on a weekly basis, those types of things, that's not the only thing. It's the person who hopes in something that's hopeless. That's pitiable. Right? Like it's a person whose who's hope is kind of embarrassing. And honestly, if you found a, a I'll just go with me, if you found a middle-aged man who had spent decades of his life pursuing the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. And you're talking to him, he's sincere. And he's turned his whole family, moved his whole family to Ireland. And he's living in this weird group of people who are all searching for a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And every week he devotes his time to looking for a pot of gold. And you're sitting there talking to him, and he's trying to convince you, you should come look for gold with him. Don't you walk away just pitying him? Like his faith and his hope are so childish and stupid. You feel bad for his wife. You hope his kids don't get infected with the craziness. Like you just, it's, it's sad. Like something's malformed in him. And you walk away thinking, God, please rescue him. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, if we sincerely step back from the Christian faith and you tweak the resurrection just a little bit, that's where we are in truth. Anyone who sees us should walk away saying, I hope they get out of that because that is a mess. That's hopeless. What a dummy. They're crazy. And they'd say that out of pity and care. And that would be a sincere and honest objective dissection of Christianity if you only mess with the resurrection. Now, I, I would suggest to you as a pastor, there's multiple more reasons we'll get to in the weeks to come as we go through chapter 15 here. And one of them is it does affect our behavior and our holiness. 
So for me, I was just kind of meditating this afternoon thinking, if I, if I live with the hope of the resurrection, it will energize my holiness. And if I allow life to kind of obscure that hope, if I get so busy, if I get my nose so down in the everyday life where, you know, I'm about kids and school and, you know, making sure we get the groceries on the table and I forget there's a resurrection coming, my holiness will decay. The resurrection matters. It matters to my personal holiness. It's also challenged me just to be really consistently working through theology to think clearly. You know, on a weekly basis, I am theologically talking. But even with our, within our church, it wouldn't surprise me that we would have a very soft approach to someone who's theologically quirky and aberrant. I don't know if that makes sense, but if you're kind of an outlier and you're, you're believing something theologically goofy, you might get a very compassionate, gentle response within our church, depending on where it is in the realm of theology, right? <laughs> like On some things, we're like, well, that's not good. You need to change what you're thinking. And other things, are like, oh, okay. <laughs> you're thinking, I hope someone talks to them about that. That's weird. I can't imagine the Corinthians, when they were messing around with this, that they were thinking about how much poison they were introducing to their faith, their behavior, and their practice. Can I just encourage you all? Be very committed to having a humble heart about your theology. One of the toxins within our own ignorance is we don't know where we're ignorant. <clears throat> it's kind of like in the dark, you can't see what you can't see, and so you don't know something's there or not there. Ignorance is the same way. You don't know what you don't know. I remember graduating seminary, and someone's like, wow, you, you must know a lot. And I, my professors were all kind of like in the background. I just remember looking at and they spend their like decades devoting themselves to narrow fields of study. Right? Like, like Jeremy is spending all of his time devoting himself to Hebrew, Akkadian, and Ugaritic, right? Aramaic. And, and probably, and he's got to be more of a generalist than he would probably prefer to be if he was in an American seminary, but devoting himself to a handful of books in the Old Testament in which he'll get a mile deep. And I'm like looking at all these guys and thinking, if they were a composite of one man, that man might know something. But having gone through seminaries, like I was profoundly aware of my ignorance. Because these guys have spent decades, have written books on their specialty. And they don't feel like they're scratching the surface. And I think within our churches, we are way too comfortable with our ignorance. You know, the Christian culture in general is like first grade, and we've graduated to second. We're like, we can just coast. We're good. It's like, you're second grade. Like, come on, let's get after it. Because if we don't, we're going to have some crazy, stupid theology infect us, and we don't have apostles writing us letters to rebuke us. Like, we are all in jeopardy of going theologically sideways if we're not really diligent to be biblical and thoughtful and humble and learning and growing. Listen, the, the defense against theological toxin is learning humbly from the Word of Christ today. And I think a lot of us are very devotional in our Bible reading. If I can just kind of hit one last pastoral thought on this one. We read the Bible to find out how to be a better husband. But that is an incredibly theological pursuit. That shouldn't just be like, oh, you know, I should go on date night with my wife. 
Yeah, you probably should. But if you just started in like Ephesians 5, and you, you read the line that says, you need to love your wife like Christ loves the church, okay? You stop. How long will it take you to understand how much Christ loves the church? What's the theology of the love of Christ for his elect people? What does that look like? How does it manifest itself in all of the decisions that Christ makes? How much does it cost him? In what ways does he nurture the church and fellowship with her? What, like, I mean, even just the consideration that the very church he loves and has devoted himself to is a church that needs cleansing. Right? If I could say it bluntly, he loves an ugly church so that he can make her into a beautiful church. And so when you're looking in the mirror and you're struggling with treating your wife well because she's not been treating you well, Christ preaches to you. My love is not conditioned on the treatment of the church to me. I love her without her being glorious so that my love and my devotion and nurturing of her can bring her to glory. And I do this through the ministry of the word. That theology of Christ will change your husbandry of your wife. And so my encouragement is the Corinthians clearly are getting bad theology and it's infecting the whole community. And so I, I want you to be passionate about theology, not because you're an egghead and you like knowing big words that no one else knows. Man, know your Savior. Okay, so I want to transition. Um, speaking of the Savior's love, come, come with me to Ephesians 3. I want to try to do something tonight. It might be a little bit awkward, but um, I've known for, I've been known for doing dumb things before. So once again, we'll brave the breach, jump into maybe something that won't be, won't work well, but I think it will. I think it'll be helpful for you. Um, because of the transition there, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to use Ephesians 3 as a paradigm for prayer. I, I mentioned last week about praying publicly. How many of you struggle a little bit with anxiety in praying in a group? Of course, I just asked you to raise your hand, and you're like, oh, I'm already anxious. I probably shouldn't have asked that out loud. Um, but but I, I think a lot of us do. So I, I think one of the ways to begin building some spiritual muscle with prayer where you can pray with confidence um, is to pray Scripture. And we could do this with, the Psalms are really fun to pray because they're so, um, they're so earthy. And by that, I was just thinking even like Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? I'm like, oh, we need to hear that. I mean, just go to Fox News. You're like, yeah, the heathen are raging. I mean, and go to CNN. The heathen are raging. It doesn't matter. They're all pointing at each other and saying they're raging. And like, yeah, they're all heathens. Right? Like, this is, but almost all of them are antagonistic to Christ's people. Psalm 2 tells me how to pray with this, to hope for this and know why. Right? Like, I have a context for understanding my world when I read Psalm 2. I read Psalm 1, and I'm told about how good God's word is. And now I know how to pray for his people. Right? Okay, so we come, to, we come to Ephesians 3. I preached this uh, when I was in Uganda. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this. I'm just going to point out maybe a way to pray through this. Okay, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He's our Father. He cares. He hears. He listens. What do fathers do? They provide. They protect. Who has access to the king in any country? His children. Right? Like, like, we forget about it, but we had two kids that had, like, nonstop access to the president from 2008 to 2016. 
the most powerful man in the world, we often say. Okay, so like I, I am coming before the Father. I bow my knees. I come in humble supplication to the one who cares and knows my Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's sovereign. Right? They all derive their existence and name from him. This is kingship language. They've all been named by him. Every tribe, every people. So I'm coming to the one who cares about me and who is king over every people, every person among the peoples. Man, that gives me hope to pray, right? Well, if I'm going to load up my prayer with this type of introduction, I better have something solid to pray for. So look at how the apostle continues. According to his glorious According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, so what, what is the content he starts praying for? He's like, I want God's people to have supernatural spirit-given strength that is energized by the very power of God to accomplish his work. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that there be a renovation of your heart so that Christ is pleased to dwell in you so that you would have your anchors deep in his love. And I think that would imply that you then practice his love. I think that's part of the point he's making implied here is that we aren't just knowledgeable about his love, but that we are, we are producing his love within the church. I don't know if that makes sense. Verse 18, that we have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ. This is... This is 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, right? As we behold Christ, we are changed from glory to glory. So when, when I am praying for someone to know the love of Christ, I'm not praying that they would just merely understand it, but that by understanding it, by walking in his love, by being in fellowship with the Savior who loves us, they would then be transformed from glory to glory. That they would become Christ-like in loving I love the thought that surpasses knowledge. How long will you need to be learning and meditating on the love of Christ to master it? Listen, if your one specialty in heaven is the love of Christ, we could park you in the library of the books about Christ's love and come back a billion, billion years later and we say, hey, are you done with your paper yet? You say, no, I'm on chapter one. Right? Like, it is in, you're never going to get your arms all the way around it, which is just delightful. Right? On what day could you not go to Scripture and find out something new about the love of Christ? Right? If you're bored, the problem is with you. Right? Our Savior is just absolutely incomprehensibly glorious in his love. And the ultimate purpose then is to him who is able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that's at work in us to him be glory. Where? In the church, surprisingly listed before Christ here. If you go back to chapter 3, you are in chapter 3, but if you go backwards in chapter 3, you'll see like in verse 10, God is putting a display of his manifold wisdom so that angels themselves are fascinated and amazed by you as God's work, well, by God's work in you, probably say it more clearly, Right? And as God takes broken, messy, sinful, wicked people, saves and sanctifies them and changes them into his glorious bride as he condescends to live and dwell among them and love them and turn them into vessels who love one another like he loves them, the angels are sitting there going like, oh, 
God's amazing. God is amazing. God is amazing. His wisdom, his love, his sanctifying power, his presence to bind and build his people through love. Wow. They're stunned. I don't know that we should take that as just righteous angels. I can imagine the demonic angels looking with consternation and awe. Like, we have worked so hard to corrupt him. And 10 minutes after reading Ephesians 5, he's loving his wife still. How does he do that? Man. Have you ever thought about how amazing the unstoppable love of Christ is to an angel who's fighting against it? How stupefying it is to him? And God gets glory through that. Okay, so I gave you that second sermon so I could pray. And I'm just going to pray for the Pitsleys this way. But then here's I'm going to end. And when I end, don't look up. Pray for the people around you. So some of you are sitting next to your spouse. Some of you are sitting next to people that you do know. If you're sitting next to people and you're like, I don't know their names. Well, pray for, pray for people you love and care about. Pray for this church in a general way. Say, God, this church family needs this. Okay, so we're going to pray silently. We usually don't pray silently on Sunday night. So we're praying as a church silently. Like I said, sometimes I do dumb things. But I'm just going to try to put some skin and bones on this as I pray. And then I want to give you some quiet time to pray for one another. And then we're going to take a, a little bit more time at the end and maybe praise the Lord, if, depending on how long you all pray. So what I'll do is, after I'm done praying, I'll give you a solid five minutes. Okay? 